Hello, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine, hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today I'm joined by Nathan Zilbert, who is a senior resident in general surgery, also at the University of Toronto. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? I'm doing very well, Amol. How are you? Fantastic. So today, Nathan and I are going to be talking about two articles. First, Nathan is going to talk about the effect of participating in a surgical outcomes monitoring program and how that is associated with complications and mortality for surgical patients. And then I'm going to be talking about a potentially practice-changing article about the use of steroids in treating community-acquired pneumonia. And of course, as always, we'll wrap up with our Good Stuff segment, bringing you short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. So Nathan, kick us off. Tell me about surgical outcomes monitoring programs and how that affects patient outcomes. All right. Thanks, Amol. So the paper that I'm going to discuss is from earlier in 2015, a JAMA paper entitled Association of Hospital Participation in a Surgical Outcomes Monitoring Program with Inpatient Complications and Mortality. And interestingly, what it found was that participation in a uh, growing uh, program called the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program did not lead to improved rates of complications or lower mortality. Okay. So it's a negative study. It is indeed. Okay, so why don't we start by talking about what the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program is? Yeah, and and why I guess this is a, a big deal. So the National Surgical uh, Quality Improvement Program is... Uh, Can we come up with a short way of saying that? Otherwise, we'll never get through this episode. Well, I'm so glad you asked. It's uh, frequently abbreviated as NISQIP. And it is uh, under the auspices of the American College of Surgeons. And and basically, it's a voluntary program where uh, institutions subscribe or pay to be uh, a member of it. And in uh, doing so, they also hire a, a nurse, usually, to basically record prospectively both uh, admission data and various discharge data on every uh, surgical inpatient that they look after at their institution who is uh, being treated with uh, certain uh, uh, pre-selected disease entities or undergoing uh, pre-selected operations, usually in uh, the general surgery, vascular surgery uh, sort of realm. Is it on uh, every patient or a random sample of patients, Nate? Well, it's uh, on a, a, a supposed to be a random sample of patients from their institution, a representative sample. Okay. And they provide for every um, member institution uh, benchmark reports on all of the outcomes that they measure in a risk-adjusted fashion so that uh, the member hospitals can get a sense of how they stack up in relation to all of the other hospitals that participate in this. And currently in North America, there are over 400 hospitals participating in this, including uh, some of our uh, teaching hospitals here in uh, Toronto, actually. So what did they what did they do for their evaluation? So in this uh, study, they actually looked at a bunch of hospitals that were participating in another uh, consortium of academic medical centers that was considered to be an administrative database looking at certain uh, clinical surgical outcomes. And of this uh, group of 117 hospitals, they had uh, 113 of them included in their analysis, and about half, uh, on average, were participating in an ISQIP. I say about half. Uh, because some were participating in NISQIP for some, you know, operations and some not others. But the, on average, for the, uh, I believe it was 
17 different operations that they looked at in this study. About half were participating in NISQIP and half weren't. And they were able to, using this uh, other database, the University Healthcare Consortium, compare outcomes between these groups and see not only if uh, participation in NISQIP resulted in improvements over time, but how that compared to non-NISQIP participating institutions. Because it had been shown previously that just looking at NISQIP participation in general without any comparison had resulted in some improvements in the outcomes that NISQIP tracks. But the question was, is this just the effect of other you know, uh, changes in healthcare delivery and various institutional or systematic uh, influences and NISQIP is just uh, you know, an unrelated uh, entity? So what they found was that in all of their hospitals, both those participating in NISQIP and those that were not, the complication rate and mortality rates improved in a similar way over their four-year study period. But they didn't sh- find any differences between overall complications, what they consider to be serious complications, and mortality, whether the hospital was participating in NISQIP or whether it was not. Okay, and so the analysis here is not really the difference between the groups in terms of absolute differences, but rather how the groups changed with time, right? Well, that's one of the things that was of interest to them. And then the sort of overall, uh, you know, at any point in time, I guess, or at the end point of their, of their analysis, what were the rates of mortality, complications, and uh, serious complications. And they were overall a about 5% rate of complications, about a 0.2% rate of major complications, and uh, 0.8% mortality. And those numbers were similar between the two groups. How do the authors explain this finding? They don't make... Uh, I mean, like I mentioned before, they, they did suggest that the hospitals participating in this study may actually be quite similar independent of NISQIP status and may, you know, all because they're all academic medical centers, all of whom have chosen to you know, participate in this other uh, administrative database and maybe all have some kind of an interest in quality improvement. They may all be engaged in various quality improvement activities, but just not all NISQIP. Surely, and that's what you see by the secular trend of all the hospitals improving with reduced mortality over time. Right. And then, and then you know, they obviously raise the uh, possibility, which I think is of interest to people uh, involved in the NISQIP program and in maybe other uh, large-scale quality improvement initiatives, that perhaps uh, the hoped-for benefit of participating in such a program uh, may not be uh, what people thought it was going to be. Right. So that's the sobering, I guess, analysis here. A couple of thoughts come to my mind. The first, just to sort of, I guess, be more precise about my last statement, which is that the overall rates of complications of all patients across all the hospitals seems to have improved with time. That doesn't necessarily mean all the hospitals have improved. Some may have gotten better. Some may have gotten worse. Absolutely. Um, It's hard to imagine that providing data on the performance of physicians or surgeons in this case, intuitively, that should encourage people or motivate practice change. But what we know from both the literature around audit and feedback, as well as around quality improvement, is that there are many steps between providing data and then leading to meaningful change. And it's possible that hospitals, even though they're, they have a desire to improve and, and they're participating in NISQIP, aren't actually necessarily Im- using the NISQIP data optimally 
to improve them their own practice. Well, I mean, yeah, we have no way of knowing that from uh, from the data that you know was used in this study. Or could, what if you stratify the NISQIP hospitals into those that have developed some specific implementation strategies to those that are just getting the data? Uh, I mean, and even doing that on a hospital level would be would be you know uh, a challenge. You would almost have to do it on a on an operation basis or specific you know colorectal versus thyroid versus hernia. These are all going to be certain you know, cared for by different practitioners, maybe reporting to different people with different Absolutely. budgets and care teams, et cetera. So, you know, I, I think there are uh, a couple of important points that I would would uh, like to highlight about quality improvement programs such as this, a, a lot of which uh, has been sort of uh, conveyed to me by one of the uh, surgeons at the University Health Network who has sort of taken the lead um, on this. And, and I guess, you know, part of it is, you know, you hear a lot about pay for performance and quality-based funding, and 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 these are all going to be, I think, as uh, we are at the you know early stages of our careers, uh, going to be, I think, important uh, parts of of the healthcare system that we interact with. And having a quality improvement program with this kind of uh, data behind it and this kind of institutional buy-in. That in the case of you know this being relevant to surgeons has been designed by and implemented by and modified by surgeons I think is is very important in that we royal we have chosen the outcomes that are important to us and not and that's not being done by some kind of uh, you know third party funder uh, we go to them with this uh, robust system and I think that's really important I think the other thing that's really important is, is just following up on what you said is just participating in, in a database is uh, is you know step one you know we recently at our M&M rounds uh, highlighted some complications from uh, you know some appendectomies and someone decided to go to the data and uh, NISQIP data and find out where one of the hospitals that I'm working at now uh, stands up in the whole database and the, and the numbers were a bit discouraging I think they were in the kind of eighth decile for some complications that was that information wasn't just sort of sent to us it had to be specifically requested in the context of you know a question that came up during our own quality improvement rounds, and you know to see what comes of that obviously could be nothing or something based on uh, what is ultimately uh, reviewed in the quality improvement process that happens to have been undertaken in a kind of reactive way. So I, I mean, there's huge opportunities I think with this data, and we're only beginning to be able to take advantage of them. Yeah, so, I agree. So why don't we wrap up? Why don't you tell me what you think are the major takeaway points from this paper? So, I mean, I think the major takeaway points uh, from the paper are uh, maybe less important than the uh, the final comments that <laughs> we just than made. Than the pontification <laughs> that you and I have put together. Yeah. But, I mean, I think the major takeaway points from the paper are that in looking at uh, participation in the NISQIP program, uh, these authors weren't able to find significant uh, benefit among a uh, group of academic hospitals of between those that participate and, and those who do not for uh, complications and mortality. That's the, main, that's the main finding of the paper. But, uh, but if you care about the more important part, which is what Nathan and I think, and why don't we say the royal we here? <laughs> I, I mean, I think regardless of, this, of, this, of these findings, uh, quality improvement programs like this are, are here to stay and probably only going to become more integrated into our practice and and I'm you know probably within the next you know we can speculate few years maybe 
earlier in surgery where this seems to be a little bit more mature than in some other disciplines, uh, you're going to get more proactive uh, use of these reports, and this is going to be a big part of our uh, a big part of our practice in in probably hospital based medicine for sure. Yeah, and I think as thoughtful practitioners as we hopefully are, what I would really like to see out of this is some exploratory work trying to understand these results. So it's one thing for us to sit here and pontificate and say probably it's because of this, but those these are empirical questions that can be studied, and I hope people do through a combination of both uh, qualitative and quantitative work. I agree. Okay. All right, so why don't you uh, talk to me about prednisone and pneumonia? a potentially practice-changing trial. I think it might be. So this double-blinded randomized control trial that unfortunately does not have a snappy name. (laughs) That's disappointing. It's terrible because now I have to say that study in The Lancet showed that... Not to be confused with that other study. Exactly. It's terrible. So this double-blinded randomized control trial in The Lancet showed that adding prednisone 50 milligrams daily for seven days to the treatment of community-acquired pneumonia reduced time to clinical stability for patients, and length of stay in hospital. So the authors studied 785 patients. Half were assigned to a placebo group and half were assigned to the prednisone group. And these were patients who were seen in the emergency department or on a medical ward and hospitalized. And then the patients received assessment by a clinical assessor every 12 hours of clinical stability. And they found that the time to clinical stability in the treatment group took three days, whereas in the placebo group took 4.4 days. Similarly, the length of stay in the treatment group took six days, and in the placebo group took seven days. The treatment group received a shorter duration of intravenous antibiotics, though the overall duration of antibiotics was the same between the two groups. There was no difference in the rate of pneumonia-associated complications between the two groups. And the only adverse consequence of the steroid was an increase in in-hospital hyperglycemia requiring insulin in the steroids group, which was 19%, versus 11% in the placebo group. But there was no difference in insulin use at 30 days. So a transient hyperglycemia seems to have been the only adverse consequence of the steroid use in this patient population. Likely due to unnecessary checking of the blood sugar. <laughs> spoken like a <laughs> spoken like a very spoken like a surgeon but not a physician yes <laughs> okay so nathan so tell me about how they uh, made the pneumonia diagnosis in these patients uh, even from kind of the the brief description there of having these patients uh, assessed q12h for resolution of their clinical symptoms it, it you get a sense that maybe these patients are being uh a little bit more closely scrutinized than the average uh, customer. So tell me about the diagnostic criteria used and uh, your thoughts on how similar that would be to your general practice. Sure. So the, the inclusion criteria, they used a fairly, I think, reasonable definition of pneumonia, which is hospital admission with community-acquired pneumonia defined as an infiltrate on chest x-ray and one of cough, sputum production, shortness of breath, fever, abnormal respiratory exam, or leukocytosis. So a constellation of symptoms, uh, but they had to have a chest x-ray infiltrate associated with that symptom 
and they had to have an admitting diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia. So some physician thought that their main reason for being there was pneumonia. So that was the that was the trigger. It wasn't uh, like they, these patients weren't notified to the uh, study team until pneumonia had been written down somewhere by someone unrelated to the study. Correct. Okay. And they excluded people who could not consent, and then they excluded a number of people in whom you might not want to give steroids. So people who had adrenal insufficiency, or rather you couldn't give those people a placebo. Um, Other conditions requiring steroids, people who had severe immunosuppression, GI bleeding. So a few other things, but relatively reasonable. Uh, It was a well-designed study, is, is my impression. Um, and I'll just say briefly that this was it was conducted at seven tertiary care hospitals in Switzerland between 2009 and 2014, and that the other treatments for the pneumonia were all based on local guidelines for antibiotics and predominantly used either amoxicillin clavulinic acid or uh, ceftriaxone uh, or some other third generation cephalosporin, which is exactly what we would probably use in Canada today. So tell me, I mean, so very impressive results. Sounds like a well-designed study, but uh, is this the first time someone's asked this question? Prednisone's uh, used for a variety of respiratory conditions. It's uh, readily available, cheap, around forever. Is this, uh, is this the first time someone's looked into this? So no, it's not the first time. There have been a number of other studies looking at this similar question. The Recent systematic reviews or meta-analyses about this topic suggest that steroids are beneficial in patients with severe pneumonia, often requiring ICU admission, but the evidence for moderate severity of pneumonia uh, is weak and has not actually been that, that well studied. So that's where this really adds a lot of evidence and a lot of weight. And also, this is a really, you know, a relatively large study, 800 patients and well-designed. The thing that you might sort of, I guess, quibble with or ask about is, is the, the outcome measure that they used. Why do you say that? Well, it's a, it's a soft clinical outcome, right? It's the time to clinical stability. So here's how they measured clinical stability. It was basically that the patient had to have stable vital signs. I could read them all to you, but effectively they needed to meet criteria for having stable vital signs. They needed to have their mental status at baseline they needed to be tolerating oral intake, and they needed to be oxygenating well on room air. So uh, it's a, a clinical assessment of overall um, improvement, I guess, was their primary endpoint. And really, that's probably because they were underpowered to detect mortality differences. What, uh, what was their mortality rate? So the mortality rate was 1% in the prednisone group and 2% in the placebo group. Uh, not statistically significant difference. If, uh, if patients were admitted directly to the ICU or needed to be intubated or BiPAPed or something like that, were they included in the analysis? Yes, they were. Uh, so actually, it's, it's a good question about how severe was the pneumonia. So they used the pneumonia severity index, um, which categorizes patients on a variety of clinical factors and, and comorbidity factors on the severity of their illness. And it's five categories. People in category one and two, often you might say, uh, could be discharged from hospital. Uh, Two and three, you would consider admission to hospital. Uh, Four and five almost always need admission and might need ICU admission. So these patients, 40% were class four, category four in the PSI index, and then roughly distributed evenly across the other classes. Uh, So there were a number of people who required ICU admission. 
However, they were probably relatively underrepresented overall in the study. So there weren't that many severely ill pneumonia patients in this study. So, I mean, for the average patient that you're admitting to the general ward with community-acquired pneumonia with, you know, fevers and requiring nasal prongs, I mean, is mortality really the uh, the most important outcome? I mean... Uh, yeah, I guess you- it depends who you ask. I think it's very reasonable that you're uh, improving their time to clinical improvement or reducing their time to clinical improvement, and you are improving or reducing their length of stay in hospital. So certainly those are very important outcomes, both for patients and for the health system as a whole. Uh, And so, yeah, I fully agree. I guess the point is just that this study as yet has not demonstrated... We we may not be saving lives here with prednisone, but but, uh, we're saving, uh, we're improving people's uh, return to good health and quality of life. Agree. And getting them out of the hospital sooner. So it seems those seem like important outcomes. Absolutely. If you if we want to just look at a couple of subgroups of patients to to see whether there are any differences. So the the sepsis group would be one, and uh, there were no statistically significant differences in patients who had pneumonia and sepsis, uh, but there was a trend towards better outcomes in the uh, septic group with steroid treatment. And then the other group that's interesting would be the COPD patients who theoretically would be treated with steroids anyway. Uh, And uh, there were roughly the same numbers of COPD patients between the groups. And again, really no major difference. That was statistically significant, but underpowered. So we can sort of deduce from that that the bulk of their effect was seen in those non-septic, non-COPD patients. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think this is uh, this sounds very compelling. So, do you think uh, this will change your practice? Do you need to uh, see more data? What What do you think? That's that's a really good question. I'm 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 sort of weighing that in my mind as we speak. And fortunately, I'm not on clinical service at this precise moment on this on the clinical teaching unit. So, I have a few more weeks to think about it and to ask colleagues who I trust um, and and see what other people are doing. But I'm very inclined to start giving people steroids. Uh, I'm leaning strongly towards, yes, this is going to change my practice. So do you think it should change uh, my practice? I just had a patient a few days ago, post-Whipple, hypoxic, got an x-ray, infiltrate, started her on some antibiotics, so hospital-acquired pneumonia and day four uh, post-surgery. What do you think about extrapolating to that population? So great question. I would be hesitant to extrapolate for probably two reasons. Uh, One is that the microbiology of community-acquired pneumonia is a little bit different from hospital-acquired pneumonia. And one thing that I didn't mention as something that I've recently been wondering is we know that steroids are beneficial in meningitis, but they seem to be beneficial specifically for people with pneumococcal infection. Um, And one of my questions here, as we know, is one of the main Uh, causes of pneumonia is strep pneumococcus. And I wonder if this is a pneumococcal phenomenon or not. And that's something I'd be interested to see down the road. Uh, Though the microbiology of of pneumonia in terms of the yield of cultures is much lower than of meningitis. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, that may be a question that's harder uh, to answer. Among among those uh, non-ICU bound patients. Exactly. exactly. uh, So it might be harder to answer. Uh, But having said that, I guess the other question, the other point I'd make about your Whipple's patient is that the adverse effects of steroids in terms of its effects on wound healing might actually 
play a bigger role in that context than it being relatively benign in the other patients that were talked about in this study. So you're saying before uh, starting steroids, I should call you anytime, day or night. Anytime you wish, Nathan. To clarify. Yeah, anytime you wish. I w- so to put some, maybe we'll just frame the finding here and then and, and talk about the, the takeaway conclusion. So in this study, which was a multi-center, double-blinded, randomized control trial conducted, as far as we can tell, relatively high quality or very high quality, uh, showed that in hospitalized patients with community-acquired pneumonia, adding prednisone as an adjunct therapy improved clinical resolution and reduced length of stay. Future directions are to look at its effects on long-term outcomes in terms of readmission to hospital, uh, long-term complications of either pneumonia or steroids, and potentially survival benefit. And the populations that were not well represented in this study, first of all, were ambulatory patients, not represented at all. So I have no idea what to tell a primary care physician seeing someone in their office. Um, And second of all, uh, ICU patients may not have been as well represented in this study. Uh, And so we may not be able to say precisely, though there seemed to be a trend towards uh, benefit in that patient population as well. And then, as we said, hospital-acquired pneumonia and our post-surgical patients, maybe not uh, generalizable based on this data. Okay, Nathan, what was good in the world of medicine this week? So I came across uh, an editorial piece uh, in the New England Journal that I thought was uh, really uh, well-written and interesting. It was uh, entitled, On Marginal Healthcare, Probability Inflation, and the Tragedy of the Commons written by a guy named uh, Benjamin Roman, who's uh, an ENT uh, fellow, I believe, uh, in New York City. And he tells a story about how he had some uh, sort of transient hearing loss that uh, brought him to uh, medical attention to, I guess, one of his uh, teachers, uh, otolaryngology. And, you know, this guy obviously has just finished his ENT training. He knows all the guidelines from studying the exam about who needs workup and who doesn't. And and he sort of knew that his symptoms were almost certainly benign and temporary and had no uh, adverse consequences, but he ultimately ended up getting an MRI at the urging of both his uh, physician and his wife. And uh, he goes into some, uh, uh, I thought, uh, eloquent detail about how uh, we have kind of a problem in our system of, uh, of you know, uh, resource management and... Uh, he has both kind of personal anecdotes as well as, uh, uh, you know, large-scale data to discuss uh, this problem. It was a, a well-written piece. Oh, that does sound really interesting. So my suggestion is actually something that we try not to do too much, which is endorse our own colleagues and partners at Healthy Debate. But there was a, uh, I think, particularly interesting opinion piece on Healthy Debate called How Do We Deliver on the Promise of Personalized Medicine, written by Alad Edwards, one of Canada's leading basic scientists. And he basically talks about how there is a great excitement and momentum and promise around this notion of personalized medicine, which supposedly follows from this great era of genomics that we live in. And he hearkens to the recent... Barack Obama announcement in the State of the Union about large investments in this regard. And he makes the point that really to date, personalized medicine 
hasn't delivered dramatically on that promise and that we have a long way to go before we can really achieve the gains that that we're all hoping for. First of all, he he draws on two examples, cystic fibrosis and Huntington's disease are conditions in whom we have known the genetic problem for decades. And yet, billions of dollars later, he says, there's only one expensive drug for cystic fibrosis that helps 1% of patients, and there are no treatments for Huntington's disease. And so his argument is that just sequencing the genome and understanding the the genetic basis of disease is perhaps like participating in Nisquip, many steps away from really achieving the promise. And his argument is really to to make precision medicine a reality. He suggests that one, uh, research funding needs to be more risky and daring and not continue to fund projects that are about the same set of genetic uh, problems. And then two, to invest in better approaches to inventing medicines, because the current approach is too slow and expensive. So it's a really thoughtful piece, and I invite you all to read it. Okay, Nathan, a pleasure to speak with you as always, and I hope we can do it again soon. I hope so too, and we'll talk to you soon. See ya. Bye.